this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer with Joey Krug from Pantera and Augur. Augur is a project I've talked a lot about on the show before. It's a prediction market. It is something that uses what is called wisdom of the crowds. And so Joey and I had a really long kind of philosophical conversation about the crowds and about how large groups of people have been thought to be able to potentially things like think about the weight of an apple. And so if you have 100 people and they kind of can guess at the weight of an apple, that they get pretty close to the actual weight of the apple. But we talked about how social media and how certain inputs that we constantly use these days in terms of the news that we read and the things that we see on TV and YouTube kind of have an influence on that. So it's a really interesting conversation that we had about the wisdom of the crowd and how that relates to Augur. We talked about the different markets that are appearing on Augur. There's ones for uh, weather, there's ones for political forecasting, there's ones for event hedging. Lots of people are starting to use it for very interesting purposes, and you can create new markets on there. And there's actually a new volume coming out, volume two of Augur, which is coming out in the next few months, so keep out a lookout on that. And we talked about his work at Pantera. He's the CIO, and so what uh, Pantera is looking for in terms of investments, the new theses that they're looking at, they're looking at a lot of things in scalability, uh, things like Layer Zero um, from Blocks Route and others out there. So we talked a lot about kind of their thesis and things that they're looking for in terms of new investments throughout the year in the next year. This is a great conversation, all encompassing. Joey is legendary in crypto. Uh, so if you don't know him, you will now. So please take a listen. Remember, nothing on Base Layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear the conversation with Joey. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Joey Krug with Pantera and Augur. This is a two-for-one. Joey is uh, the CIO at Pantera, which is a fund that we've already had on with Paul, and uh, we learned a lot about what Pantera was doing. Um, Joey also has a lot of experience as a founder. Um, Augur is a project that if you're not familiar with, I think I've brought it up about 15 times on the show, and I've also written about it. Um, So this is something for family offices and high net worth investors to definitely understand about, and they'll learn a lot about it today. So Joey, if you could, uh, just for the listeners, the quick 101 about you, kind of where you started and then we'll go into some questions we'll learn a little bit more about the kind of the why bitcoin and blockchain not the when but if you could for the listeners just give us a quick one-on-one about you and how you got into the space and then we'll go into a lot of stuff about augur and about pantera yeah so i guess the way i got into this space um was initially just mining bitcoin i kind of came across it on the internet and thought it seemed pretty interesting um I read the Bitcoin white paper and, you know, in reading that realized that it was the first time somebody had created a currency uh, besides gold that wasn't really attached or connected to any specific nation state. So it was just this electronic uh, digital money. And so I found that very interesting, started mining Bitcoin, didn't really do a whole lot with it again until 2013, the price started going up. I started paying attention to the space again. And then uh, in 2014, I was 
2013-2014, I studied computer science in Southern California at Pomona College and ended up leaving and started working on what became Augur. And so, okay, so there's the money aspect of it. Was there anything else from, because you built a company, you built Augur now, which is effectively, you know, we'll go into what Augur is in terms of a prediction market and some of the things that you're doing there. But the utilization beyond money seems to be something that you've been able to kind of harness on. Is there, were there other things aside from the kind of the money and the censorship resistance that kind of caught your eye on, on the blockchain side of things? Initially, no. I mean, those are those are really the only two things people talked about. They talked about how you could, you know, send Bitcoin from point A to point B. It was basically, um, you know, money over the internet. Uh, very easily, you could send money to any person in the world um, in under ten minutes at at very low transaction fees. It really wasn't until later on, uh, you know, a few years after that, when people started discussing other use cases. You know, at some point, people started talking about Bitcoin as being digital gold. Um, and then they also also started talking about smart contracts as well. That those are kind of things that happen later on. And we'll go into whether or not you believe in the whole digital gold commentary and the narrative there. So I definitely want to get your your kind of insight on that. If you could, for the listeners, explain what Augur is and what it does. And initially, kind of, you said you started you started talking about why you kind of you started creating it. What is Augur? Um, just from the very preliminary kind of top layer, and then we'll go into the very specific use cases that you guys are doing in terms of political forecasting and event hedging and all that stuff. But just from the high level, explain kind of what Augur is and what the purpose is. Yeah, so what Augur is, is it's a platform uh, for prediction markets, <clears throat> and it's it's all decentralized. So everything's peer-to-peer. So you can basically, you think about Bitcoin, it allows you to send money from point A to point B anywhere in the world with no limit, kind of very low transaction fees. Augur is trying to do, do the same thing, but for basically betting and trading. So you can trade on any kind of future event with anyone in, anywhere in the world, very low transaction fees, it's kind of no limit to how much you could trade. And from a concrete standpoint, um, people are speculating on future events. So this can be anything from the outcome of a presidential election all the way to, you know, which horse will win a horse race and everything in between. And so an area I want to spend some time on is that the notion of Augur and the notion of prediction markets kind of relies on the proverbial wisdom of the crowd. As I kind of alluded to before with you, I'm a big fan of behavioral economics, and I really love trying to figure out why people do what they do. Um, I know that's pretty simple, but I've read Kahneman, I've read you know a lot of the other kind of social behavioral economic folks out there, and so you know with it, the wisdom of the crowd is a keystone or is a cornerstone of Augur. Is that not correct? Yeah, that's right. And so you know, explain you know if you could you know. With the the wisdom of the crowd, you know there seems to be the averaging together the individual guesses of a large group about you know maybe the weight of an object. So if you had a hundred people and there was you know a few bricks, you know you know a hundred people would try to obviously get close. And it seems that a larger group, the more people you have, you know you get closer to the actual weight of something or the actual answer to some sort of question. Um, but then, you know, when you actually start seeing some iterations around that, like we had with like the dot-com bubble, and you have all the investors or a majority of the investors believing that all of these internet companies are, you know, 
they're going to take off. And there was a lot of hype there. And then they obviously had a bubble. And so, you know, when you think about, you know, groupthink and when you think about, you know, kind of the wisdom of the crowd, do what do you think affects that positively or negatively? Like does second layer thinking or second level thinking kind of negatively affect the wisdom of the crowd? Do more social media kind of news filters affect the wisdom of the crowd? Are there things that materially affect positively or negatively the wisdom of the crowd these days? Yeah, definitely. So if you look at wisdom of crowds, you know, there's like three main things that it requires. And, um, I forget all three of the top of my head right now, but the most important one is, is kind of independence of thought and not necessarily knowing um, what everyone else is thinking. So if you look at the historical example, when it was first discovered, when somebody asked people to you know, guess the weight of a certain ox at like a state fair in, in England, I think in the 1800s, it worked pretty well because people were guessing kind of, they're all over the place. Some people were too high, some people were too low. and the only people who were consistent were those who actually, you know, knew pretty close what what an ox should actually weigh. And so the idea is that the outliers cancel out, and you're left with whatever the the truth is. It's kind of the same reason why, um, if you look at you know why do police cross examine criminals? Well, it's because it's really hard uh, to keep a lie straight. It's hard to keep a story straight. But if you're telling the truth, of course, it's very easy. You just tell the truth. Um, of course, your point though is right, which is when people are you know, thinking the same thing, uh, the wisdom of crowds doesn't doesn't really work. So an example would be in, you know, a speculative bubble in like the stock market is an example. If everyone thinks that, you know, tech stocks are the greatest thing since sliced bread, there's not as many people who are kind of seriously questioning that thought. And so that's why, um, you know, markets can be kind of less accurate. The interesting thing about prediction market, they have a pretty quick feedback loop. You know, if you're, um, if you were betting on, you know, sports matches, for instance, unless you have a good system that actually works, you're probably going to lose your money relatively quickly because, you know, multiple games happen a day versus if you're trying to speculate on the price of a stock, you know, that that can be a much longer term time horizon. And it's, it's a lot harder to get the wisdom of crowds around that. I guess the last thing I would say on that is if you look at stocks, the wisdom of crowds is bad at, you know, saying like what should Tesla be fairly valued at? It's really good at incorporating information really quickly. So one example is when the Challenger shuttle blew up, there is this company, I think Challenger was the one with the faulty O-rings. There's this company that made the O-rings. And within a few hours of the explosion, the stock price of that company tanked. And it took like Congress like nine months of investigation to find out the same thing. So the market's really good at incorporating information, but on the kind of macro level, like should this actually be worth as much as it is? It's, it's not as good at that. So in that particular case, and I love that example, um, but now, and you know, kind of fast forward to now, you know, we have, you know, over 7 billion people on this planet and over half of them now have either a computer or a smart device or a phone in their pocket, you know, 2 billion plus people on Facebook. We have, you know, a few million hundred, a few hundred million people on Twitter. And so the speed and the accuracy of information that they are getting um is obviously been a challenge and we've seen that kind of play out with the last election in 2016 we saw you know negative forces affecting you know kind of think and the information flow that was coming out 
what do you, I know this gets into the kind of philosophical conversation. I know you want to talk more about Augur and, and kind of what's going on in Pantera, but I find this incredibly interesting. So what do you think in terms of, you know, those kind of instances where even now we're starting to see some sovereign countries trying to affect the way that material and information and news is getting distributed to us. How do you think that plays out in terms of, you know, the future of prediction markets? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I guess it kind of gets down to the question of like, you know, does the average citizen today have a good grasp on what is actually real, you know, what reality is. Um, And then that kind of ripple effects throughout society everywhere. Uh, Prediction markets are one area because you're basically betting on, you know, what's going to happen in the future. And if your viewpoint of today is completely misguided, then you're going to have a bad view on the future uh, just as much as you are, you know, for for any any other decision you make in your life. Um, And I think, yeah, I think that's the problem. You know, I don't really know a good a good answer to it. I guess the problem really gets down to there's just so much fake news in society today, and it's also you know custom tailored um, to target users who are really prone to actually liking whatever flavor of fake news that they happen to see. Um, if you look at you know companies like Facebook, they're starting to you know flag fake news sources. If you see one in the Facebook news feed nowadays. A lot of the time it shows up and says, hey, like this is probably fake news, says it in a nicer way than that. I forget what it actually says. But so there's kind of all these different guardrails you can do. Of course, they have downsides as well. You know, one person's fake news is is another person's, um, you know, conspiracy that no one believed and ended up becoming true. Um, And there's, there's, you know, a few of those throughout society where people said, you know, they said X was true for years and then no one ever believed it. And then eventually it turned out that, well, they were actually right. But in the present, when they said that, it would have been perceived as being fake news. My favorite example of this is when people, you know, in the 90s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s said, oh, the NSA is spying on us. You know, that sounds crazy. Like, you know, people back then thought, oh, that you must be like a crazy person if you think the government is spying on you. Um, you know, you're just an average person. There's no way the government actually has your data. But in reality, well, it turned out that that was 100% true. And the NSA does basically spy on everyone. So that's the one big tough challenge with fake news is, you know, how do you really know whether it's fake or whether it's just kind of a conspiracy that, you know, hasn't been 100% proven uh, to date. So I am going someplace with this. So you've had a lot of experience. You know, Zaki was on the show a few weeks ago. We talked about one year in crypto equals 10 years in, in real human life. And so you've been at this for at least, you know, five, six, seven years. So you're like 70 years into this already, Joey. So I, I think you can handle this. But, you know, when you talk about fake news and we talk about, you know, the kind of information that's getting you know distributed to us, there are some things within the crypto ecosystem that are trying to address that, like a true story, like previous company um, and some other iterations around that. Do you think that could offer that could be a solve to this problem that, you know, the ecosystem around blockchain and crypto could actually start creating better news outlets? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah. I mean, one, one thing I was saying to somebody earlier is like, um, I think it's kind of BS that the space moves 10x faster. Really, I think the, the news cycle in crypto moves 10x faster. But the actual software development is is basically at the same pace or even slower than, than traditional software just because it takes so much time. I think it I think it feels like it moves 10x faster just because people are doing things that have been never been done before. So, you know, some zero to one small improvement um, or small delta feels like a huge 10x thing. Um, I guess in terms of news, though, yeah, I think... Um, you might be able to do some stuff like this, this concept of like token curated registries where 
basically what True Story is trying to do, where people essentially kind of, you know, vote on whether they think, um, you know, something is is actually accurate or not. Um, the issue with that, though, is you still have to, you still have to have a kind of a diverse population actually voting on it, right? So it's the same, it's the same thing with the wisdom of crowds. For instance, if you had two groups, three groups of people, one was just the average person. Um, the other group was a group of people who really liked left-wing fake news. And the third group was a group of people who really liked right-wing fake news. And you had them in equal amounts. And then you had them voting on whether news was fake or not. It'd actually be probably pretty accurate, in my opinion, because the wisdom of crowds would state that the outliers would cancel out. Most of the fake news would get detected. The people who love left-wing stuff would say, well, the right-wing news is fake. People on the right wing would say the left fake news is fake. And then the stuff that's in the center would kind of surface up and you'd actually get a decent uh, reflection of reality. Um, so I think, I think that kind of stuff is possible. Um, I think the bigger, bigger question surrounding it, though, is, you know, somebody who actually cares about that probably isn't reading that much fake news to begin with versus somebody who doesn't care, probably doesn't care even if that solution exists. So it's kind of a catch-22. So... A little bit more about on Augur. So we talked, you know, very briefly about some of the use cases. So we talked about political forecasting. We talked about event hedging. We talked about weather. And then, so for for people that don't are not familiar with Augur, you also have the ability to create markets that don't exist. Um, and so, would love for you to kind of delve into a little bit about, you know, in terms of political forecasting and t- in terms of event hedging and weather. What are some of the things, you know, obviously the 2016 election, and then we also have the recent uh, elections over the last six months. What are, are you starting to see more uh, utilization for the, the political side? Are you starting to see it from more the event hedging side? Are you starting to see people like Nate Silver using some of that data for their forecasting? And then also would love to kind of hear what's some of the what's some of the weirdest kind of markets that have been created that you're like, really, why did you even take the time to do that? And if you could, you know, kind of explain to you know the listeners out there how one actually creates a market on Augur. Because there's the rep token, there's some kind of incentive models, and there's some, you know, kind of staking type of situation. Explain to people how it all works and the mechanisms. Yeah, let's yeah, let's start with that. So you know, basically the way it works is you go to Augur, which you can download as a downloadable app, or you can visit it on a website. And there's a button that says, you know, create market. If you click on it and then ask you, you know, what's the title of your market? So you could say, <clears throat> you know, will Donald Trump be reelected in 2020? Or how many inches of rain will fall in you know, San Francisco in the next month? You know, whatever it is. And then you put in when the market will expire. So when people will be kind of, people will know whether that event happened or not. And then you input um, a few other things like what sort of fee you want to charge on the market. Um, so the person who creates the market can add a fee on top of it. And then um, you choose kind of what outcomes the market has. So if it's a yes or no market, that's pretty simple. You could also have ones that are like a range of possible outcomes. So like, you know, how many inches of rain will fall, zero to 32, you know, something like that. And then the last type is called categorical, which you can think of that as like being a presidential election, you know, will it be Trump? Will it be Kanye? Will it be, um, you know, Joe Biden? Whatever list of candidates you have. Did you just say Kanye? It, yeah. 
<laughs> okay. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. So, so you basically, you, you then kind of click the next, the next button, uh, which then says, Hey, like your market's not ready to be created. Do you want to add some initial liquidity to it? So do you want to put some orders on the book? So for instance, if you think Trump has a 50% chance of winning, you may put an order to buy Trump at like 49 and order to sell Trump at like 52. And, um, and then after that, you click submit. And what happens is Augur basically creates a new Ethereum smart contract for your market. And then alongside that, it takes a bit of money from you that was escrowed is what's known as a bond. So it basically takes two things. It takes a rep bond and an ether bond. And so rep is the token used in Augur. And um, what happens is if the market, so say you create the market and it ends up being an invalid market where the market's not going to resolve appropriately. Like say you made it expire in June, but the event happened in July, that would be invalid. And so you lose one of those bonds. It's a way to try to discourage people from making invalid markets. And then the other piece is when you create a market, you submit the first report in the system for how the market should resolve. Um, if you don't show up, somebody else can do it for you. That slows things down a bit. And so you lose the other bond if you don't show up. But basically, provided you do those two jobs right, uh, you get your money back. So that's how creating one of it works. Um, the other piece is kind of on like what interesting markets uh, are on Augur right now. And they mostly are surrounding you know things like what will the price of Ether be? What will the price of Bitcoin be? Uh, political events, like will Trump be impeached by you know the end of 2019? Um, there's another one like will Trump be awarded a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, which is a pretty funny market. Um, the current price of that is 3%. So Augur thinks there's a 3% chance that uh, the president wins a, a Nobel Peace Prize. I, I won't opine on that one um, because we're very apolitical on this show. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's interesting I had written about, you know, kind of thinking into, I, I actually uh, titled it, you know, writing about, you know, in 2053. So we're talking, you know, 30 plus years into the future. And I actually, you know, the way I envisioned Augur is you, you wake up in the morning and yeah, it's just one instance of using weather, but you would use Augur to see what the, you know, kind of what's, is it 75%, you know, more likely that it's going to be raining today, et cetera, et cetera. I just saw that, you know, things like this with the wisdom of the crowd, like we talked about before, and some of the incentive models in here, it just seems like it could replace some of the legacy systems that we use for these types of things. I'm curious, um, do you see a lot of traditional hedge funds using this to try to, you know, gain uh, insight into markets? Yeah, definitely not today. Um, you know, I think right now, if you try to use Augur, it requires you to use Ether to basically trade. And so for anybody who's even a professional or, or amateur retail user, all the way to an institutional trader, none of those users are actually going to even use Augur today at all because they don't want to take the ether volatility risk. For instance, you know, take the like a weather market as an example, you know, whether it's going to be rainy on Saturday or not, um, you don't want to be accurate on that and then lose money uh, due to the ether volatility. So an example might be like, if you're a good trader, you may have like a 2% edge on average. That would be a really good trader. You'd be making, you know, tons of money. You'd probably be one of the wealthiest people in the world if you had just a 2% edge in, in financial markets in terms of like accuracy. So if you look at that from a prediction market standpoint, okay, that's great. You basically are making, you know, um, greater than 2% on, on average for each bet that you place. But then Ether's daily volatility is like really high. 
Um, especially during times of like fast moves, Ether can move anywhere from, you know, negative 20% to positive 20% in a single day. And so for that reason, um, it's really hard to use Augur today. That's going to change though. When Augur version two comes out later this year, it'll have support for a currency that's actually pegged uh, to the US dollar. So you'll basically effectively be able to bet in dollars. Because then I think that opens it up a bit. Even then, it's still going to mostly be retail users, I think. For institutional users to use it, it needs to be much faster. And so that kind of gets into the scalability, scalability issues we have with blockchain tech today is, you know, they're still pretty slow. So if I'm not mistaken, does that mean that there's going to be a stable coin associated with Augur? That's right. Oh, is that one that you're developing yourselves or is that something outside like a USDT or something of that nature? It's something outside. It's called, uh, it's called DAI, D-A-I. Oh, so from Maker. Okay. Interesting. I did not know that. Um, so as I said on the onset, you wear a lot of different hats and the show would be kind of twofold. And there would be the Joey that's obviously at Augur and then there's the Joey who's the CIO of Pantera. And so would love as a, you know, as your role kind of defines it, you know, switching to Pantera, kind of what is your investment thesis, you know, as of now into 2019, we've obviously at Nauseam talked as a whole community about crypto winter, which some people have speculated is now over. We've obviously seen the price of Bitcoin recover and obviously rebound. People are starting to beat their chest again and starting to say, you know, you know, this is where it's going to happen. And obviously you and I and everyone else, you know, obviously is very, is, has a lot of conviction that this is where we're spending our professional time and, you know, our careers. But you know, what is your kind of thesis now going from 2019 to 20? Is it a focus on infrastructure? Or is it a focus on scalability? Is it a focus on governance? Is it a focus on interoperability? Where are you really spending the time these days, you know, versus maybe years past? Yeah. Um, so if you look at, you know, what we're investing in at Pantera, um, it really kind of spans the spectrum. So for our current venture fund, we're looking at two main categories of companies. One are companies that bridge the existing financial system with what I call the new one, which is crypto. And so those are companies that are things like fiat on-ramps, new exchanges, whether those are institutional grade exchanges or companies trying to be the coin base of a certain geography, you know, trying to be the coin base of Brazil or the Middle East, that sort of thing. Then the other category is lower level infrastructure. And so these are companies that are trying to solve you know, trying to solve the scalability problem or trying to, you know, make it much easier to develop on these networks and make it way faster to write software. There's one company we invested in that makes it easier to write secure smart contracts. And so those are the two big areas um, on the on the venture equity side. And then on the token side, you know, we're still looking at people creating new cryptocurrencies. The most recent deal we've done there uh, was a company called Blockstrap which is basically a, a company that's trying to solve the scalability problem by making it so, well, in a nutshell, the big scalability issue is on the networking layer. If I have a computer and I want to send a transaction to Ethereum, my computer sends it to seven other computers. Those seven other computers send it to seven more. And this basically continues to happen until the whole network has the transaction. And so this company is trying to basically create uh, a system that's you know much faster and, and quicker than that. And we just had already from Blockstrap on, and uh, we are definitely, you know, I'm excited about what they're doing. Um, and it was really interesting. We had a very, you know, lengthy conversation about layer zero. You know, everyone's been talking about how to make things on top of layer one. 
So layer two solutions like Lightning, we've talked, you know, people have talked about side chains, people have talked about you know, zero knowledge proofs, people have talked about hash time locks. And so everyone seems to be kind of trying to add on top of layer one, and it seems that Ori and his team are really addressing below layer one and layer zero. Do you think they're, you know, the market has kind of maybe gotten it wrong for the last few years? Is Ori and his team of Blockstrap really kind of addressing the necessary infrastructure below layer one? Do you think it kind of it's the it's the app and the infrastructure kind of question that I've had addressed a lot of, on the show? Do you think we need to be building the infrastructure below the apps first, or do we need to have that killer app that got everyone interested before we start building the infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I don't think we'll have any wildly successful apps until until the infrastructure you know isn't terrible. Um, this is different than the internet. People like to say that, oh, well, you can just build the app and then figure out the infrastructure later. And you know, that worked for something like Twitter, where they got a bunch of users, the site crashed, they got a bunch of users, the site crashed, and, and then they kept adding servers and figuring out how to scale. That doesn't work for financial markets. Um, and if you want to kind of illustrate the absurdity of the argument, you can say, okay, imagine somebody wanting to create the New York Stock Exchange. And they lived in a world where electronic trading was prevalent. And to do a trade on the new, the new New York Stock Exchange, you had you can only do one trade every you know 30 seconds. It, it, it would never take off. It would just never work because it, it was too terrible of a product for it to get any traction. And so I think on the infrastructure side, there needs to be at least enough scalability where the experience can be you know maybe 10x worse than the traditional world. Whereas right now it's just it's just a, such a such a poor user experience. So I think I think you have to solve the the scalability problems to even get successful apps. You can get the idea of what a good app could look like, but the experience just isn't there until you solve the scale issue. So that's a great question, lead-in kind of conversation. So there has been this idea, this narrative that getting people, the average Joe and Jane, you know, it's been said. It's the narrative is is that we'll get to adoption and we'll get to scale and everyone will use it when they don't know that they're using a crypto or a blockchain enabled product. It's just something that's ingrained. It's something that they use. They don't really necessarily know the difference between, you know, private keys. They don't know necessarily encryption. They don't know, you know, about side chains. They don't know about the nuances involved. They just know that it's better and it's faster and that, you know, it provides them better utility in your kind of experience in the market, you know, from a technological standpoint, being a founder and also from an investment standpoint, where, do, when do you think we get there? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah. So basically if you look at what's needed to get to a point where the user doesn't even know they're, they're using blockchain at all, there's kind of two aspects of that. One is the overall user experience and that's like onboarding. How do you get crypto? How do you sign up? How do you get an Ethereum wallet or a Bitcoin wallet or whatever it is? And you know, how does the user interface feel when you actually do transactions and click submit and that sort of thing? I think you can get there on that angle by the end of this year. Uh, I think it's mostly just kind of user experience design problems that don't have any fundamental barrier to, to solving them. So I think that part's doable pretty soon. The part that you can't get around is the fact that it takes 15 seconds to 30 seconds to, to do settlement. 
So your transaction may go through or it may get rejected. And the user doesn't really know until 15 seconds later. You can show them that their transaction is pending, but it's not the same thing. For instance, um, you know, if I do a trade on E-Trade or whatever, the trade happens basically immediately. And even though technically settlement doesn't happen for three days, I can then turn around and you know, sell that position or buy it back and, and go back and forth, do whatever I want. Um, and so basically the, the issue with crypto is that you don't have that luxury. You know, if you got to wait 30 seconds for your trade to go through, you got to wait 30 seconds. And so the only way you can solve that problem um, is by you know, addressing the scalability issue. Uh, that's one angle. The other issue is that you know, even if you decrease the amount of time it takes for blocks to happen, using maybe something like Blocksroot um, or Starkware, you still have the other issue of, you know, how do you actually do enough throughput? So right now on Ethereum, if I place an order or modify an order or cancel an order for any sort of DeFi application, it costs me money to do that. And it's not cheap, which inhibits market making, which makes the user, user experience a poor experience. So the other angle of making it easy to use is kind of the scalability thing. So I guess the way to think about it is this. If you go to a site, you say you go to Augur at the end of this year, and you do everything up to placing your first trade, it'll feel exactly like a regular website. And then when you click submit on your first trade, that's when like, you know, the record skips and you realize, you realize, oh wow, like this isn't just a regular website, it's using some weird like blockchain thing because it's taking a long time for the transaction to go through. And so the, the second phase of solving the problem is how do you make sure that that issue doesn't happen? Do you, I know we're going a little philosophical again, but do you think a lot of that, because you mentioned like the time and, you know, we talk about scalability, we've talked about that a lot already, but do you think that has anything to do with the fact that we've become more of an on-demand society? We, we expect, you know, we go on Postmates, we expect our coffee to be delivered in, in, a, in a very quick amount of time. We go on Netflix and we obviously can watch whatever show we want to these days. We go on DVR and we can watch all the Game of Thrones episodes if you haven't watched them already, which is a crying shame. But, you know, is it a fact that, you know, we, we've gotten to the point where we just demand such speed? Is that kind of why that we are, you know, that we have to deal with that? Do you think that's necessarily, you know, because at the end of the day, obviously, you and I understand the value proposition behind, you know, the crypto infrastructure that's being built. But. You know, if we go so fast, do you think we're more inherently, you know, capable of breaking things too? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think if you look at this issue that, that I kind of just explained, there's the cost issue, which I think is a real one. And then there's a speed issue. I think you're right on the speed one. You know, a lot of it's just how, how today's society has, has shifted. If you look back in 95, uh, if you wanted to use the internet or even in 2000, it took a long time for a site to and that was kind of the status quo or the best user experience. Now, if a website takes an extra second to load, it decreases the conversion rate by like a, a meaningful amount. So basically what that means is people are very, very impatient. Um, and I think just, it's, it's hard to kind of get around that. I think, I think if you can get down to like confirmation times of a few seconds, you know, maybe five seconds, then it's probably good enough. I think it's when you get to, you know, 15 to 30 seconds where the impatience of today's society really actually just goes against the success of your application. Um, you know, despite people being impatient, they want something really bad, they'll wait five seconds for it, uh, which sounds kind of absurd uh, saying that out loud. You know, some people work a lifetime to get certain things. 
um, from like a website conversion metric standpoint, uh, five seconds is a long time and, and 30 seconds is an eternity. Um, you know, it'd be cool if society had more patience, I guess. Um, personally, I don't mind, you know, waiting a bit for something to happen. I can go to another tab, read an article that I'm interested in and come back and it will be done. Uh, but the average person, you know, just from like the pure statistics of it and the pure data doesn't, doesn't really think that way. And so I want to hit on one more question before we just talk a little bit more about yourself. Um, I saw a quote and it was really interesting that crypto as a whole will create an alternative financial infrastructure that this infrastructure will be borderless, cheap, quick, and most importantly, will let people trade on things they've never been able to exchange before. And if those markets for those don't exist yet, it'll let them create it. So obviously we talked a little bit about that uh, regarding Augur, but if you could, what, if you, I know this is hard, but what markets and what kind of value transfer do you envision in the future that does not exist today? Because I, I would love to be able to kind of figure that out. It's, you know, have to be a little bit of a visionary. You have to obviously think way outside of the box, but what markets for value, you know, kind of transfer, you know, would, would exist, you know, vis-a-vis, you know, crypto and blockchain that don't exist today? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess I preface this with, you know, anything we're about to say is probably going to sound akin to saying that in the 90s that people will post photos of their food on the internet and their friends will comment on it. Um, so it may sound a little crazy, but, you know, here are a few things. Um, you know, one might be you can make markets on, you know, the success of basically really small things like the success of a certain company's Reddit post. Like they have like, you know, five different options to go through. Um, they want to, you know, do some marketing campaign. You can make a market on what the success rate will be for each of them in terms of like how many users they'll generate from a specific post. And then you can try posting it and kind of reward people conditionally upon like how accurate they were in, in forecasting the success of a given post. That's like one example. Um, it's super obscure and nobody would ever do that today. Um, I think the ones that I, that I actually refer to when I made that post are more things that like are pretty easily foreseeable. So an example of that would be, you know, you're a farmer in Argentina or Brazil or wherever you have a few acres and that's not nearly enough for a crop insurance company to provide insurance for you. Um, cause they're going to insure like the large big farms. It doesn't make sense for them to underwrite a policy and do everything for your tiny farm. Uh, that's in the middle of nowhere in Argentina, but a, you know, decentralized prediction market where you can create that market pretty cheaply. Um, definitely can. And somebody, you know, who's sitting in Australia or New Zealand who has a really good climate model for forecasting the climate, uh, over the course of months in, you know, whatever that valley you're located in, in Argentina is, can then basically take the other side and essentially provide insurance for you. Um, that's kind of like one example. The other example that I like to talk about is, you know, if you look at, um, investors in other countries, they don't have access to certain asset classes. So if you're a Chinese investor and you live in mainland China, you don't really have access to buying Apple stock, but you could, you know, buy a derivative of Apple stock on Ethereum. And so those are the sorts of things that I'm thinking of. But I think over time, it gets more and more long tail where you have this long tail of things that are actually very obscure and start to look more like the, the you know, sort of like proverbial, you know, taking photos of your food and posting it on the Internet. Um, maybe people will bet on, you know, the success of like a certain meme. Um, who knows? It's kind of hard to forecast that stuff. 
but I think it will go in phases. Like phase one is just going after things that exist in the traditional world, but people want to bet on with no limit uh, across the globe. Then it gets to things that could exist in the traditional world, but don't because it's just expensive or not like the ones I just explained. And then I think the third phase is going after things that are like just really obscure and don't exist at all in any financial market whatsoever today. Right. I mean, we've already started seeing really interesting things like the notion of I am a, you know, I have a lot of experience in X category and I might have some free time and yeah, you know what, you are an entrepreneur or you are trying to get into that field and yeah, you're going to actually pay me for 30 minutes of my time or an hour of my time and my expertise and it could be in a cryptocurrency. So we saw that with like Earn. We've seen some interesting things happen that incentivize people. You know, we've seen things like Steam and LivePeer where people are actually now getting incentivized and compensated for the content that they put on there. And so I agree with you, you know, past per, you know, past perspective on where it was before where it was basically, you know, the internet was just a tool for people to go on AOL instant message and, you know, kind of chat with each other in, in rooms to the point where now there's such information share and we're actually using it as a marketplace is is quite an interesting evolution. So I, I love the idea of, you know, kind of looking forward, you know, obviously everyone gets very kind of stuck in the day and day out of crypto. And I like looking out and seeing kind of how things could uh, could change. And so... The last few things that we like to do on the show with guests is kind of get inside your brain. And so, you know, the two areas that I like to focus in on are what you're reading, um, as you know, because I know you know a lot of people in crypto. We're all hypothetically very well-read people, and there are lots of people who read a lot. Um, and so it is a multidisciplinary kind of practice. There's lots of things that we all need to either learn about if we don't know or continue to learn about because it's just an evolution of uh of knowledge and so would love to know what you're reading if you have been reading anything hopefully either not just crypto related but also for fun and then in terms of music you know what kind of music you listen to what gets you going if you're either working or you're traveling what type of music is uh is going between your ears on the music side i, I mostly like um so you know like anything from Queen to Green Day to Weezer. Um, on the book side, let's see, right now I'm reading, um, there's uh, this book by Glenn Whale called Radical Markets. I disagree with like two thirds of it, but I think a lot of it's interesting ideas and concepts for, you know, basically creating like new sorts of financial markets. So I think it's, I think it's really uh, interesting idea. So I love that kind of stuff. Um, there's another book, um, I'm drawing a blank on right now. That's basically about um, about how people are kind of predictably irrational. There's another book called Predictably Irrational. This is not that book. Um, if I remember, I'll send it to you, and maybe you can put it in the comments or something. Sure. Um, and then uh, historical books that I've read that have been good. You know, of course, um, the Signal, uh, the Nate Silver book about you know noise and signal, signal and noise uh, about like um, basically forecasting. Um, and then of course, you know, wisdom of crowds, uh, is another good book. Um, yeah. And I guess the other thing I read a lot is I read a lot of papers, mm -hmm. um, because you can get kind of, you know, you get maybe 20 pages of content, but it, lots of people write a whole book to explain 20 pages of content. So you can get a lot of the same stuff just in a paper. And so really good essay is actually this one by Hayek called uh, the use of knowledge in society. Hmm. 
I didn't know that you were a Queen fan. It's uh, I actually I don't know about you. Did you? I, I want to hear more about this. Your opinion on Bohemian Rhapsody? So this is gonna surprise you. I actually haven't seen it yet. Really? Okay. Well, you have something. I know you travel a lot, so I, hopefully you'll be able to catch it on one of your flights. But um, I actually saw it now twice. I think I've seen it within a week span about two times so if you are a big queen fan i definitely recommend checking it out um and so the last things that we like to do on the show is you know if there are folks out there that want to learn more about auger and obviously more about your work at Pantera, you know feel free to drop them you know some information where they can find out more whether it's website or anything like that yeah for auger it's just auger.net a-u-g-u-r and then for pantera it's P-A-N-T-E-R-A, capital.com. Um, and then both those have links to like our Twitter and emails and all that kind of stuff if you want to dive deeper. Awesome. So again, this is a special episode, Joey from Augur and Pantera. We learned a lot about prediction markets. We learned a lot about what Pantera is doing. Joey has been around for a long time, is probably regarded as one of the most highly esteemed people in the space right now. So lots to learn from him. Uh, check it out. Check out Augur. Check out Pantera. And hopefully we'll have you back on after version two is released and check in and see how things are going and see what kind of crazy markets are being created on Augur. And we'll be talking to you soon again. Thanks, Joey. Take care. Well, thanks. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.